0: book 10 chapters 3 and 4 of the rise of david levinsky this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the rise of david levinsky by abraham kahan book 10 on the road chapter 3 as a salesman bender proved a dismal failure but I retained him in my employ as a bookkeeper and a sort of general supervisor. I could offer him only $10 a week with a promise to raise his salary as soon as I could afford it, and he accepted the job temporarily. As general supervisor under my orders, he developed considerable efficiency, although he lacked initiative, and his naivete was a frequent cause of annoyance to me. I found him spotlessly honest and devoted. I quickly raised his salary to fifteen dollars a week he was the embodiment of method and precision and he often nagged me for my deficiency in these qualities sometimes these naggings of his or some display of poor judgment on his part would give rise to a tiff between us otherwise we got along splendidly we were supposed to be great chums in reality however i would freely order him about while he would address me with a familiarity which had an echo of respectful distance to it. With him to take care of my place when I was away, it became possible for me gradually to extend my territory as traveling salesman till it reached Nebraska and Louisiana. Thus, having failed as a drummer himself, he made up for it by enabling me to act as one. He had been less than a year with me when his salary was twenty dollars. Charles Eaton, the Pennsylvanian of the hemispherical forehead and bushy eyebrows, who had given me my first lesson in restaurant manners, was now my sponsor at the beginning of my career as a full-fledged traveling salesman. He took a warm interest in me. Having spent many years on the road himself, more particularly in the Middle West and Canada, he had formed many a close friendship among retailers, so he now gave me some valuable letters of introduction to merchants in several cities. When I asked him for suggestions to guide me on the road, he looked perplexed. Oh, well, I guess you'll do well, he said. Still, you have had so much experience, Mr. Eaton. Well, I really don't know. It's all a matter of common sense, I guess. And after all, the merchandise is the thing. The merchandise and the price. He added a word or two about the futility of laying down rules, and that was all I could get out of him. That a man of few words like him should have succeeded as a salesman was a riddle to me. I subsequently realized that his reticence accentuated an effect of solidity and helped to inspire confidence in the few words which he did utter. But at the time in question I was sure that the gift of gab was an indispensable element of success in a salesman. Indeed, one of my faults as a drummer, during that period at least, was that I was apt to talk too much, I would do so partly for the sheer lust of hearing myself use the jargon of the market, but chiefly, of course, from eagerness to make a sale, from over-insistence. I was too exuberant in praising my own goods, and too harsh in criticizing those of my competitors. Altogether, there was more emphasis than dignity in my appeal. One day, as I was haranguing the proprietor of a small department store in a Michigan town, he suddenly interrupted me by placing a friendly hand on my shoulder. His name was Henry Gans. He was a stout man of fifty, with the stamp of American birth on a strong Jewish face. Let me give you a bit of advice, young man, he said, with paternal geniality. You won't mind, will you? I uttered a perplexed, why no? And he proceeded. If you want to make good as a salesman, observe these two rules. Don't knock the other fellow and don't talk too much. For a minute I stood silent, utterly nonplussed. Then, pulling myself together, I said with a bow, Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I am only a beginner, and only a few years in the country. I know I have still a great deal to learn. It's very kind of you to point out my mistakes to me. The gay light of Gans's eye gave way to a look of heart-to-heart earnestness it ain't nice to run down your competitor he said besides it don't pay it makes a bad impression on the man you're trying to get an order from we had a long conversation gradually passing from business to affairs of a personal nature he was interested in my early struggles in america in my mode of living in the state of my business and i told him the whole story he seemed to be well disposed toward me but it was evident that he did not take my one-horse establishment seriously, and I left his store without an order. I was berating myself for having revealed the true size of my business. Somehow my failure in this instance galled me with special poignancy. I roamed around the streets, casting about for some scheme to make good my mistake. Less than an hour after I left Ganz's store, I re-entered it, full of fresh spirit and pluck. I beg your pardon for troubling you again, Mr. Gans, I began, stopping him in the middle of an aisle. You've been so kind to me. I should like to ask you one more question, only one. I trust I am not intruding? Go ahead, he said, patiently. I shall do as you advise me. I shall never knock the other fellow, I began, with a smile. But suppose his merchandise is really good and I can outbid him. Why should it not be proper for me to say so? If you'll permit me, pointing at one of the suits displayed in the store, a brown cheviot trimmed with velvet. Take that suit, for instance. It's certainly a fine garment. It has style and dash. It's really a beautiful garment. I haven't the least idea how much you pay for it, of course, but I do know that I could make you the identical coat for a much smaller price. So why shouldn't it be right for me to say so? He contemplated me for a moment, broke into a hearty laugh, and said, you're a pretty shrewd fellow. Why, of course there's nothing wrong in selling cheaper than your competitor. That's what we're all trying to do. That's the game, provided you really can sell cheaper than the other man, and there are no drawbacks in doing business with you. What I said about the brown suit piqued him. He had his bookkeeper show me the bill and defied me to sell him a garment of exactly the same material, cut, and workmanship for less. I accepted the challenge. "'offering to reduce the price by four dollars and a half "'before I had any idea whether I could afford to do so. "'I was ready to lose money on the transaction "'so long as I got a start with this man. "'Gans expressed doubt of my ability to make good my offer. "'I proceeded to explain the special conditions "'under which I ran my business. "'I waxed eloquent.' Doing business on a gigantic scale is not always an advantage, Mr. Gans, I sang out with an affected Yankee twang. There are exceptions, and the cloak-and-suit industry is one of these exceptions, especially now that the cloakmakers' union has come to stay. By dealing with a very big firm you've got to pay for union labor, while a modest fellow like myself has no trouble in getting cheap labor, and when I say cheap I don't mean poor labor, but just the opposite i mean the very best tailors the most skilled mechanics in the country it sounds queer doesn't it but it's a fact none the less mr gans it is a fact that the best ladies tailors are old-fashioned pious people green in the country who hate to work in big places and who keep away from socialists anarchists unionists and their whole crew they need very little and they love their work they willingly stay in the shop from early in the morning till late at night they are dead stuck on it, eh? Gan said quizzically. They are used to it, I explained. In Russia, a tailor works about fourteen hours a day. Of course, I don't let them overwork themselves. I treat them as if they were my brothers or uncles. We get along like a family, and they earn twice as much as the strict union people, too. I see. They get low wages and don't work too much, and are ahead of the game after all. Is that it? Well, well but you're a smart fellow just the same. I explained to him why my men earned more than they would in the big shops, and the upshot was an order for a hundred suits. Twenty of these were to be copies of the brown cheviot garment, which was the subject of his challenge, I buying that suit of him so as to use it as a sample. On my way home I exhibited that suit to merchants in other cities, giving it out for my own product. It was really an attractive garment, and it brought me half a dozen additional sales. I developed into an excellent salesman. If I were asked to name some single element of my success on the road, I should mention the enthusiasm with which I usually spoke of my merchandise. It was genuine, and it was contagious. Retailers could not help believing that I believed in my goods. Chapter 4 the road was a great school of business and life to me. I visited scores of cities, I met hundreds of human types, I saw much of the United States. Every time I returned home I felt as though, in comparison with the places which I had just visited, New York was not an American city at all, and as though my last trip had greatly added to the real American quality in me. Thousands of things reminded me of my promotion in the world. I could not go to bed in a Pullman car, walk over the springy runner of a hotel corridor, unfold the immense napkin of a hotel dining room, or shake down my trousers upon alighting from a boot-black's chair, without being conscious of the difference between my present life and my life in Antomir. I was full of energy, full of the joy of being alive, but there was usually an undercurrent of sadness to all this. While on the road I would feel homesick for New York, and at the same time I would feel that I had no home anywhere, that my mother was dead and I was all alone in the world. I missed Dora many months after she made me move from her house. As for Max, the thought of him, his jealousy, and the way he grovelled before me the last time I had seen him would give me a bad taste in the mouth. I both pitied and despised him, and I hated my guilty conscience so I would try to keep him out of my mind. What I missed almost as much as I did Dora was her home. There was no other to take its place. There was not a single family in New York or in any other American town who would invite me to its nest and make me feel at home there. I saw a good deal of Meyer Nodelman, but he never asked me to the house, and so I was forever homesick, not for Antomir, for my native town had become a mere poem, but for a home, I did some reading on the road. There was always some book in my handbag, some volume of Spencer, Emerson, or Schopenhauer in an English translation, perhaps. I would also read articles in the magazines, not to mention the newspapers. But I would chiefly spend my time in the smoker, talking to the other drummers or listening to their talk. There was a good deal of card playing in the cars, but that never had any attraction for me. I tried to learn poker, but found it tedious. The cigarette stumps by which I had sought to counteract my hunger pangs at the period of my dire need had developed the cigarette habit in me. This had subsequently become a cigar habit. I had discovered the psychological significance of smoking the cigar of peace and goodwill. I had realized the importance of offering a cigar to some of the people I met. I would watch American smokers and study their ways, as though there were a special American manner of smoking, and such a thing as smoking with a foreign accent. I came to the conclusion that the dignity of smoking a cigar lasted only while the cigar was still long and fresh. There seemed to be special elegance in a smoker taking a newly lighted cigar out of his mouth and throwing a glance at its glowing end to see if it was smoking well. Accordingly, I never did so without being conscious of my gestures and trying to make them as American as possible. The other cloak salesmen I met on the road in those days were mostly representatives of much bigger houses than mine. They treated me with ill-concealed contempt, and I would retaliate by overstating my sales. One of the drummers who were fond of taunting me was an American by birth, a fellow named Loeb. Well, Levinsky, he would begin— had a big day, didn't you? I certainly did, I would retort. How much? Twenty five thousand? Well, it's no use trying to be funny, but I've pulled in five thousand dollars today. Is that all? Well, if you don't believe me, what's the use asking? What good would it do me to brag? If I say five thousand, it is five thousand. As a matter of fact, it'll amount to more. Whereupon he would slap his knee and roar. He was a good-looking, florid-faced man with sparkling black eyes, a gay, boisterous fellow, one of those who were the first to laugh at their own jests. He was connected with the largest house in the cloak trade. Our relations were of a singular character. He was incessantly poking fun at me. Nothing seemed to afford him more pleasure than to set a smoker full of passengers laughing at my expense. At the same time, he seemed to like me. But then he hated me, too. As for me, I reciprocated both feelings. One day on the road, he made me the victim of a practical joke that proved an expensive lesson to me. The incident took place in a hotel in Cincinnati, Ohio. He confidentially let me see one of his samples, hinting that it was his leader or best seller. He then went to do some telephoning, leaving the garment with me the while, whereupon I lost no time in making a pencil sketch of it with a few notes as to materials, tints, and other details. I subsequently had the garment copied and spent time and money offering it to merchants in New York and on the road. It proved an unmitigated failure. "'You are a nice one, you are,' he said to me, with mock gravity, on a subsequent trip. "'You copied that garment I showed you in Cincinnati, didn't you?' "'What garment? What on earth are you talking about?' I lied, my face on fire." come come levinsky you know very well what garment i mean while i was away telephoning you went to work and made a sketch of it it was downright robbery that's what i call it well have you sold a lot of them and he gave me a merry wink that cut me as with a knife one of the things about which he often made fun of me was my talmud gesticulations a habit that worried me like a physical defect it was distressingly unamerican i struggled hard against it I had made efforts to speak with my hands in my pockets, I had devised other means for keeping them from participating in my speech, all of no avail. I still gesticulate a great deal, though much less than I used to. One afternoon, on a westbound train, Loeb entertained a group of passengers, of which I was one, with worn-out stories of gesticulating Russian Jews. He told of a man who never opened his mouth when he was out of doors, and it was too cold for him to expose his hands of another man who never spoke when it was so dark that his hands could not be seen. I laughed with the others, but I felt like a cripple who was forced to make fun of his own deformity. It seemed to me as though Loeb, who was a Jew, was holding up our whole race to the ridicule of Gentiles. I could have executed him as a traitor to his people. Presently he turned on me. By the way, Levinsky, you never use a telephone, do you? Why, who says I don't? I protested, timidly. "'Because it's of no use to you,' he replied. "'The fellow at the other end of the wire couldn't see your hands, could he?' And he broke into a peal of self-satisfied mirth in which some of his listeners involuntarily joined. "'You think you're awfully smart,' I retorted in abject misery. "'And you think you're awfully grammatical.' And once more he roared. "'You are making fun of the Jewish people,' I said in a rage. "'Aren't you a Jew yourself?' "'Of course I am,' he answered, wiping the tears from his laughing black eyes. "'And a good one, too. I am a member of a synagogue. "'And what has that got to do with it? I can speak on the telephone all right.' And again the car rang with his laughter. I was aching to hurl back some fitting repartee, but could think of none, and to my horror the moments were slipping by, and presently the conversation was changed. At the request of a gay little Chicagoan— who wore a skull-cap, a very fat Chicagoan told a story that was rather risque. Loeb went him one better. The man in the skull-cap declared that while he could not bring himself to tell a smutty story himself, he was as good as any man in appreciating one. He then offered a box of cigars for the most daring anecdote, and there ensued an orgy of obscenity that kept us shouting. I could not help thinking of similar talks at the cloak-shops. Loeb suggested that the smoking-room be dubbed Smutty Room, and was applauded by the Little Chicagoan. The prize was awarded, by a vote, to a man who had told his story in the gravest tone of voice and without a hint of a smile. Frivolity gave way to a discussion of general business conditions. A lanky man with a gray beard, neatly trimmed, and with the most refined manners in our group, said something about competition in the abstract. I made a remark which seemed to attract attention and then I hastened to refer to the struggle for life and the survival of the fittest. Loeb dared not burlesque me. I was in high feather. Dinner was announced. To keep my traveling expenses down, I was usually very frugal on the road. I had not seen the inside of a dining car. While stopping at a hotel, I would not indulge in a dining-room meal unless I had deemed it advisable to do so for business considerations. On this occasion, however, when most of our group went to the dining car— I could not help joining them the lanky man the little chicagoan and the fleshy chicagoan the three stars of the smoker went to the same table and i hastened with their ready permission to occupy the remaining seat at that table i ordered an expensive dinner at my instance the chat turned on national politics a subject in which i felt at home owing to my passion for newspaper editorials i said something which met with an encouraging reception and then I entered upon a somewhat elaborate discourse. My listeners seemed to be interested. I was so absorbed in the topic, and in the success I was apparently scoring, that I was utterly oblivious to the taste of the food in my mouth. But I was aware that it was aristocratic American food, that I was in the company of well-dressed American Gentiles, eating and conversing with them, a nobleman among noblemen. I throbbed with love for America. Don't be excited." I was saying to myself, "'Speak in a calm, low voice, as these Americans do. "'And for goodness' sake, don't gesticulate.' I went on to speak with exaggerated apathy, my hands so strenuously still that they fairly tingled with the effort, and, of course, I was so conscious of the whole performance that I did not know what I was talking about. This state of my mind soon wore off, however. Neither the meal nor the appointments of the car contained anything that I had not enjoyed scores of times before, in the hotels at which I stopped or at the restaurants at which I would dine and wine some of my customers. But to eat such a meal amid such surroundings while on the move was a novel experience. The electric lights, the soft red glint of the mahogany walls, the whiteness of the table linen, the silent efficiency of the colored waiters, coupled with the fact that all this was speeding onward through the night, made me feel as though I were partaking of a repast in an enchanted palace. The easy urbanity of the three well-dressed Americans gave me a sense of uncanny gentility and bliss. Can it be that I am I, I seem to be wondering? The gaunt elderly man who was a member of a wholesale butcher concern was seated diagonally across the table from me, but my eye was for the most part fixed on him rather than on the fat man who occupied the seat directly opposite mine. He was the most refined-looking man of the three, and his vocabulary matched his appearance and manner. He fascinated me. His cultured English and ways conflicted in my mind with the character of his business. I could not help thinking of raw beef, bones, and congealed blood. I said to myself, it takes a country like America to produce butchers who look and speak like noblemen. The United States was still full of surprises for me. I was still discovering America. After dinner, when we were in the smoking-room again, it seemed to me that the three Gentiles were tired of me. Had I talked too much? Had I made a nuisance of myself? I was wretched. End of chapters 3 and 4